And so chapter one, if you're following along, uh, is pages three through 17. And my guess is we'll get through most of that, if not all of that tonight. But um, my guess isn't always that great. <laughs> uh, so first of all, from your reading, did anybody have any other questions um, or things that jumped out at you and say, well, pastor, this has been on my mind and I really got to know right now. Laura. So, I, well, in the beginning, he talks about, you know, man trying to that maybe there has to be something that came from that church. I thought that when she baptized the Holy Spirit, that he had to work. Yeah, definitely. Um, talking about whether whether baptism kind of initiates some of that wondering and curiosity about um, seeking for God and wondering what else he has to say. Um, I would say that baptism definitely does that. And whether you're baptized as a child, um, then you're instructed afterward. Or if you're baptized as an adult, we usually instruct you and then baptize you after after that. Um, especially if somebody comes to comes to the Christian faith later in life, baptism kind of coincides with the whole the whole learning the doctrine and 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 saying, oh wow, there's there's a whole lot more here than I really had understood. Um, but I think his his larger point that 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 the natural knowledge of God prompts a wondering. Um, we see that also in like in the book of Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to Athens and he's wandering around the city and he sees an altar to all these gods. And then he's, they see an altar to this unknown God. Um, and he's like, the one that you've been wondering about and searching for, I'm going to talk to you about now. Um, and so it, it's, it's, a, it's a much more stressful experience for somebody who doesn't have the revealed word of God, um, because, because they still have the natural law, both the conscience in the heart and what they see in nature. And so they know that this powerful God exists who has standards and that I don't measure up. And that can be a very confusing or even a stressful thing uh, for a person. And sometimes people just try not to think about it. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a joyful thing for the Christian after they've been baptized. Others, any other questions that we had that the reading had brought up? All right, then we'll we'll jump right in. Um, and actually, we do have a couple of extra sheets over here. I'll grab those quickly. I knew there was something else. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So the, uh, the, the study guide or the, the reading guide that you've got there um, picked up with chapter one. Um, there's a little bit in the, the prologue um, if you, or the preface if you go back to Roman numeral eight, which is V-I-I-I. Um, in the last full paragraph on Roman numeral page eight, uh, there's one part that I, I had underlined. Um, and this is what he had said. And that last full paragraph on page, Roman numeral eight. The second problem that some may have with this work is that it as that is that it is at times polemical. That is, in the consideration of individual doctrines, no attempt is made to hide the fact that many disagree with what the Bible teaches concerning the doctrine under consideration. It is popular in our day to imagine that all doctrines, all differences in what churches or religions teach are just matters of personal interpretation or opinion. These bromides are very popular. First, it, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something. Or, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Or, well, ultimately, there's only one God and he loves everybody, so it doesn't matter what name you call him. We're all going to heaven anyway, because the God of love would never send anyone to hell. Um, I thought at least uh, to, to bring that out, that as we go through um, go through a doctrinal course like this, this uh, this is primarily written for like a, a high school or slightly above high school audience, um, which obviously is all of you um, as well. But when he when what he's going to do is is not just highlight what do we believe, but then what are some of the alternatives that that others um, that others would deny, or some uh, some specific reasons and the realities of what the deficiency in doctrine would mean for, for their life as well. Um, so it's not just a matter of this is what we believe or this is what they believe, but also the impact that that has on a particular person's faith. Okay. All right. So with that, I guess we will um, talk about what is religion. Gets us into chapter one on page three. At the top of your reading guide there, um, definition of religion, a uh, system of few or many beliefs dealing with dimly understood needs inherent in the human race okay or a system of few or many ways and means of dealing with dimly understood forces beyond direct human observation or outside of human control um i think the the simplest way to to summarize that is is that religion has to deal in some way with faith um with a particular belief that at at some point you can't prove it all the way beginning to end um, and with that kind of an understanding or with the definitions that we've got here, that also broadens the topic of religion to not just, um, not just what, does, what church or temple does somebody attend, but also what does someone put their hope in? Um, and then also, how does somebody change their life and their action and their choices based on a set of beliefs that are to a greater or lesser degree of being able to be proven? Okay. Um, so that would include, you know, science, 
for some. Um, that would include maybe even politics for some and the, the effect that, that a government could have on the well-being of its citizenry. Okay. As we go through this, um, we'll just you know, kind of cover some of these, mo most of these questions as they come up and whatever questions or other comments that, that, you, would, that you have, please uh, feel free to answer or raise your hand or speak up. Uh, next one, religion exists to offer answers to big questions. What are some of them? Yeah, why am I here? <laughs> That's the first one. And where am I going? And <laughs> definitely, what's the point and purpose of life and joy and suffering and death? Um, and that that question, even the what's the point of suffering? Um, it has been a question that philosophy has tried to answer for a long time. And, um, and sometimes they come up with an answer like, well, the point of suffering is to, you know, make, help us appreciate what we have when we have it, when we have it good. Um, or maybe the point of suffering is to, is to cleanse us and to provide some discipline so that we can, you know, reach our full potential. Um, I think, I think that idea of reaching one's full potential figures pretty prominently into, um, like the modern, modern thinking about, about some of those big questions. Any other big questions that, that kind of jumped out? Yeah, where did the earth come from? And, um, and not just why am I here, but why is all of this here? Yeah. And not and the, the question of certainty, like, how can I be sure that, that I've got the right answer when I come up with an answer? Lois, is there a God? Um, and, and all of these answers, um, you know, talking about, talking about where, you know, what is, what is religion? <laughs> Trying to offer an answer to all of these things. Um, but what they're really dealing with is, is probably the next one. I wish we had numbered, numbered these questions. Um, talks about the natural knowledge of God from your own, from your own recollection. What is the natural knowledge of God? There's uh, two major sections or divisions of the natural knowledge of God. What is one of them? I just had this, this one in catechism class. All right. So we've got God's conscience and we have the conscience, which is the voice of God's law written on our hearts. And the other element of the natural knowledge of God, not something within us, but yeah, all of creation, uh, the world around us, that you can look at this and say, you know, it's pretty cool that, that whenever you freeze something, it gets smaller, except for water, it frees it, it gets bigger. <laughs> and, and that's the only explanation for why we can still have, you know, freshwater fish after one summer, um, that the ice didn't just totally crush them. Um, and so the natural knowledge of God, when, when you're looking around us at creation, you're supposed to you know, you're supposed to be able to recognize that here's something huge and powerful that I could not make. And therefore, the logical conclusion is that someone or something greater than I must have done this. Um, or you see some of the tremendous forces of nature, like a hurricane or tsunami or volcano. Um, here's something far more powerful than, than I could make. Um, or, you know, we put a telescope out in space and then we take pictures of stars far away and here's something far more beautiful than that I could make. And all of it is supposed to lead to the conclusion that there is someone or something greater than me. And then the natural knowledge of God within the heart 
um, is, you know, the voice of God's law and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Um, and we'll get to this when we talk about original sin, but that, that voice of the law is also corrupted by original sin so that, you know, it reduces God's standard that the law in our hearts isn't a perfect guide for what God's demands are, um, where we want to say, want to be able to say that I've done it and I've lived up to it. Um, you know, when we talk about watering down God's law, there's the two ways of doing it are to reduce the duration of punishment or to reduce the severity of, of punishment. And our conscience is there to, to tell what God's law is, but since it's clouded by sin, we very easily, naturally, one might say, reduce the duration of punishment or reduce God's standard, uh, the severity of punishment. Any other questions or comments about the natural knowledge of God? We get to the... Yeah. How about Acts chapter 17? Um, I think that's that's where we will... That's where we'll go. Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible nearby, I've got a couple more up here. Otherwise, they're on the table. All right. Acts chapter 17. All right. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, uh, reads like this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was very distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he led a discussion in the synagogue with the Jews and those who feared God, as well as with those who happened to be in the marketplace every day. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. They said, what is this seed picker trying to say? Um, and so, you know, that <laughs> uh, verse 18 here, the Epicureans um, were the ones who basically said, let's eat, drink, and be merry. The whole point of life is it doesn't have much point, so let's just have a good time while we're here. And the Stoics um, said that life is only suffering, and as a result, um, the point of life is to put up with suffering well and to live honorably. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, be British <laughs> and eat terrible food. <laughs> and and Paul is um and he's he ends up in a, in a debate with with both groups because he's saying there's more to life than than just pleasure and there's more to life than than just suffering. And then when they call him a seed picker, um, they just picture it as you know a bustling city and the pigeons are flying around and picking up whatever whatever's left on the ground and here is this stranger the apostle paul who just came to athens and he's just picking up little threads and bits of whatever philosophy he wants <laughs> that's the that's the idea there of uh the seed picker comment um others said he seems to be someone who is proclaiming foreign gods they said this because paul is preaching the good news about jesus and the resurrection and I guess that, that last part, I hopefully won't interrupt myself too often, um, but that last part about the resurrection is the resurrection is completely foreign to their Greek ideas, um, that the idea, their ideal was once you go to the afterlife, then you can maybe have a spiritual existence of some sort, but that's about it. But there's no way that anybody would want their own body back. <laughs> and, and so that's the, that's the part that really catches their ears while he's talking about the resurrection, that this is kind of a big deal. Okay. 
Uh, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the council of the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are talking about? You seem to be bringing in some ideas that are strange to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there enjoyed doing nothing more than telling or listening to something new. Then Paul stood up in front of the council of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking around and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar on which had been inscribed to an unknown God. Now what you worship as unknown, this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and everything they have. From one man, he made every nation of mankind to live over the entire face of the earth. He determined the appointed times and the boundaries where they would live. He did this so that they would seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, indeed, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and planning. Although God overlooked the times of ignorance, he is now commanding all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he appointed. He provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them started to scoff. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So Paul left the council. However, some men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, as well as others with them. All right. So, and this isn't this isn't exactly a uh, a friendly meeting. Um, the equivalent in our in our system would be Paul's called before the grand jury, where they're investigating him to see if he has uh, if they have grounds to bring a charge against him, because um, Athens. Athens has a bit of a history is about, you know, 400, 450 years previously that they had Socrates put to death for, uh, for sharing some, some ideas that were very disruptive to their culture. And now when they've got this, uh, this Paul coming in, and he's this, he's just picking up threads and bits of other people's philosophy, and then he's talking about the resurrection. Well, we should, we should find out if there's reason to bring charges against him. All right, so I want you to, um, Looking especially at verses, I guess, 22 through 31, or maybe that main paragraph beginning in verse 24. Um, but looking at what Paul says as he's standing at the Areopagus, um, I want you, with those seated nearby, I'll give you about a minute or two, um, pick out two things that either in what he says or how he says it that sounds a little surprising. Um, two things that what he says or how he's saying it that kind of catches your eye and says either this is something interesting or this is something that I as a Christian might find useful. I'll give you a couple minutes and I'll reframe that question on the screen. All right. So looking at that section, looking at uh, looking for two things um, that Paul says or two things that he does even, which might be either surprising or might be helpful uh, for our witness today. What would be one 
that that kind of jumped out at you? Crystal. Yeah. Verse 29. Um, if we are truly God's offspring, then there must be some, some commonality between what we are like and what he is like, not just this, you know, stone statue kind of a figure. Cool. What else? Anything else that might be surprising or uh, conversely might be helpful for our witness today, Joe? Yeah, I see in every way that you are very religious. And that was what Ron had mentioned also, that um, he had walked around and he was, you know, pretty disgusted. You know, here's verse 16. He was very distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Um, but then when he's called before the grand jury, he finds a, a positive way of, of talking about it. Um, so that he doesn't put them on the defensive right away. Oh, you're very religious. I see, you know, you're very concerned and trying to figure out these, these big questions. <laughs> Anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, Paul was very conversant in their philosophy. So even in his training as a Pharisee, he was, he was able to read and, uh, and had some you know, decent exposure to the, the literature of his day, where he's able to, to quote from some of their own poets and writers. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That communicates. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of draw the, I'm wondering about drawing the line at cheering for the Buckeyes, but <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so there is the, you know, knowing your audience and, and thinking of a, of a contextual way of um, communicating gospel truth. Um, and, and, and I think there's, there's something to that where, um, you know, serving in like a downtown of a big city, um, versus a more rural or a small town versus, you know, where our church is basically located in a suburban area. Um, but that we serve a, a larger metro area that's still, you know, a small, big city or a big, small city, um, where each of those has particular ways of thinking and, and talking and to communicate differently in those contexts is, uh, you know, something that one has to work at. Laura, did you have some? <laughs> yeah yeah i see this altar to your cover the bases god and uh i'm going to talk about him <laughs> excellent um let's see what else i think that was the the, the main thing here um so na natural knowledge of god um talking about paul um calls refers to the idols and then uh, the psalms Psalm 139, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
uh, the skies proclaim his handiwork. Um, and, and, and then Psalm 139 is particularly about uh, the creation of the human body. Um, and so we're talking, and those, those are helpful for the natural knowledge of God in that we see the natural knowledge of God in nature around us, and also in the, the beautiful design of the human body, that there must be more to, more to people than just meets the eye. Um, what about the next one? What characteristics of God can human beings learn from nature and reason? I don't know if I have that here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So he's, he's wise and, and he's certainly powerful. What else can we learn from nature and reason? Sorry, I had the wrong slide up. Close. All right. So he's, he's very orderly. Um, and, and that does, that comes in, <laughs> figures in fairly prominently. Um, so you've got, you know, these four, these four elements of, of DNA that can be recombined into, into its own order, um, all the way to nature has its own particular order for things. What else can we learn about God from, um, from nature and reason? Yeah. All right. So God um, definitely can can express some wrath, and um, and that sometimes, and that's that's kind of the flip side when we talk about express expressions of of God's anger. Um, sometimes we don't know. It's difficult to attribute like a, a human emotion to it. That from our perspective, sometimes bad things happen just for no particular reason. Um, sometimes there is a sense of justice. Um, and sometimes it looks like it's just senselessness. And that's, that's just part of life in this broken world. Um, but we're you know, talking about what can we know about God from nature and reason. Um, there's, no, there's no real pointing to God's, to God's goodness or God's kindness. Aside from the hint, perhaps, that you know, there's some things about nature that are beautiful. Um, Maybe there's a hint that, that God um, treasures what is beautiful or that he, he as the creator, um, creates beauty. Um, there is the, the hint of God's kindness in that he sends the rain both on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, that, uh, and I think Paul talks about, maybe he talked about that, um, that he, you know, well, that he's very orderly. It was kind of the main thing that Paul had talked about. Um, yeah. Anything else? I think that was most of them. All right. How about um, going on? How would you define natural law? Where are we at in our book here? Oh, the, oh, the last part. Um, sorry about um, the natural knowledge of God on page seven. Um, that was the part that Lois had mentioned, that God is capable of great anger. This is why we have such large tables here, so you can you know, bring all the books and spread them out as much as you want. <laughs> uh, but on page seven, um, we saw that God is capable of anger. That's the first full paragraph at the top of page seven. Um, and, and then the, the paragraph after that is kind of an interesting conclusion. Uh, finally, some looking at the same evidence may give up in confusion and come to the least rational conclusion of all. They may conclude that if there is a God, he's indifferent. Um, 
And so they either despair, uh, they despair of either finding him or pleasing him. That just on the basis of what we know from nature and from conscience, um, it doesn't look like the good guys finish first. <laughs> that even though, even though our conscience tells us perhaps to act in an ethically correct way, um, there's, no, there's no valid evidence that says all the people who act in a morally good and ethically proper way um, come out ahead. And so maybe that's, that's one conclusion. Yeah. 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 And, and it's only, I mean, I, I really have sympathy for somebody who's, who has never been instructed in the word of God, um, trying to, trying to figure out life and trying to figure out how, how does life supposed to work and where is the sense of fairness? Um, like those questions we talked about at the very beginning, they, they are real questions, even if, you know, they're relatively simple for even the youngest, you know, youngest of our kids to, to explain away or to understand. But for somebody who doesn't have the revealed knowledge of God in scripture, um, then it's, it can be a very distressing thing. Not that, you know, the unbeliever is sitting there and fretting away every night, but it's definitely a, pro a possibility. What do we have here? Uh, the natural knowledge of God from natural law and conscience. How would you define natural law? This is, you know, kind of collects it all together. Yeah. Definitely. That, there, that there's a sense of uh, right and wrong and a sense of order that is, um, that is greater than us. Um, and that, that when we talk about natural law, it's yeah, just understanding that the same basic set of rules should apply. Um, and some, sometimes that can be blurred by, by culture or by upbringing. Um, but part of natural law says, you know, there should be this sense of order. If God is a God of order and I have this conscience of God's law, then the next logical step is this God of order probably gave you the, the same conscience or a very similar conscience. Um, yeah. What about the, the conscience? I think we've, we've touched on that a little bit. How would we define that? Yeah, yeah, the little voice inside that said, "This is this is right or this is wrong." Um, I usually usually summarize it as the voice of God's law in in somebody's heart. And um, if we look at, if you open your Bibles to Romans chapter two, Romans chapter two, um, especially verses fourteen and fifteen. So you're thinking Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then Romans. So Romans chapter one um, highlighted that the wrath of God is poured out on all people. Um, and that, and then Romans chapter two um, also says that the wrath of God is also on the, the Jewish people as well as the Greeks 
whether they have the, um, the written word of God or not. And verses 14 and 15 um, is, a, is a parenthetical thought. Um, in the NIV, they had it in parentheses. Here in the, the EHV translation, they kind of give it its own paragraph. Um, and looking at these verses, we're going to look for the, the specific things that the conscience does. Uh, it reads like this, verses 14 and 15. In fact, whenever Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, even though they do not have the law, they are a law for themselves. They demonstrate the work of the law that is written on their hearts, since their conscience also bears witness as their thoughts go back and forth, at times accusing or at times even defending them. So from this, these verses, what does the conscience do? What are the actions that the conscience does? What is one? All right. Bears witness to the natural law. Um, and so in verse 14, um, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the, the written law the way that the Jewish people did. They didn't have it written down in written form. Um, so when the Gentiles who do not have the written law do by nature what God's moral law requires, um, even though they don't have it, then they are law for themselves. Okay. What else does the conscience do? So it bears witness to natural law. Okay. That's that voice of accusation. Um, that's, you know, that uh, describe it to the catechism kids is like that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you did something wrong and you just got busted for it, <laughs> or even if you didn't get busted. Um, and then the last thing that the conscience does. We don't think about this one very often. Yeah. Yeah, it, the, the conscience defends. Um, and so, especially when, when we're talking about the, the conscience, um, apart, from, apart from faith, apart from the information of the revealed knowledge of God, um, the conscience also defends me in what I do. Well, I put in, I put in 60 hours this week and, and I deserve to be able to relax, put my feet up and um, I don't have to keep serving everybody. Um, or I did, I did enough, you know, I just stole from that gas station, you know, it was just a candy bar, but then I helped that, that little old lady across the street. You know, I'm not that bad of a person. And besides, um, besides the guy's got to eat and would they really prosecute me for a dollar 25 candy bar? When I was a kid, they were like 50 cents. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. All I can say is I'm glad that they're still making Neko wafers again. <laughs> and so, and so the conscience, um, when we talk about the conscience, it's not just accusatory. It's also, you know, congratulatory that, you know, not just, oh, you didn't measure up, but also rationalizing you did measure up. You did do something that was good enough and, um, and, and you are okay. Um, and that the conscience, um, I think the way that Joe had put it was that it bears witness to the natural law, um, that God is uh, as a God of order, that God is the one who created the, the operating principles of this world and that the conscience, um, even though it's clouded by sin, it still bears witness to the fact that there is a set of principles that are above and beyond you and me. 
Um, they're not above God. God makes the rules, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, we'll get to that when we get to uh, the birth of Jesus. Anything else on natural law and the conscience? And I think, you know, this, this kind of comes into play um, with our gospel reading this coming Sunday from Luke chapter 16, which is the, uh, the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus. Um, because even the Jewish people or, you know, the most, one of the more popular concepts today comes from Hindu belief of karma that, you know, if you do, if you do good enough, then eventually good things will come to you in the end or flip it around. If something bad happened to you, then you must've done something to deserve that thing that is bad. Um, so I think I'll probably talk about karma in the introduction on Sunday, but what, what we really have to see is that the, that concept of karma is just an outgrowth of the conscience. Um, and, and in a way that says, if, if I do good now, then good things will happen to me tomorrow. And also if something bad happened to you today, then you must've deserved it in some way which is a, which is a terrifying proposition and is, you know, doesn't mesh with anything Christian. Um, but you know, when you talk about the rich man and poor Lazarus, you can't, you can't get around the question of karma. How, how is it that we have this, this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And the, like the, the popular understanding of it is, is different from, you know, the way that Hindu belief teaches it, <laughs> but it's, there's a lot to it. Uh, anything else? Let's see. We talked about, um, talked about the conscience and, and so one of the major terms that, that we will come around to again, and um, I don't know, well, it'll probably be in the next chapter or two when we get to original sin, um, sometimes you just need the Latin, the, the English would be opinion of the law. Um, the opinion of the law, the Latin is opinio. So you just trap the N off the end of opinion, opinio, uh, legis, L-E-G-I-S, um, means opinion of the law. And, and that concept says that each person has their own opinion of the law. Um, their own opinion or their own distortion of the conscience and their own opinion of where they stand in relationship to God, as well as their interactions with other people. Um, and that is, that's, uh, you know, I don't know, a cancer of the conscience based on, because of the sinful flesh. I don't know how else to put it. It's this distortion of the conscience that our sinful flesh knows the law well enough to, to say, I'm not liable for what I do. Ron. Yeah, God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on a cross. But I'm <laughs> Yeah, and that that's exactly that's that's one of the major major points of um, you know, outreach in general that dealing with a society where the standard changes um even down to, you know, the questions of human biology, the standard changes on what you're feeling like today or what you're thinking today. Um, to, to bear witness to an object of truth that applies to all people is, is kind of a difficult task. But that the, when we're looking at the, the natural knowledge of God here, 
Um, it reminds us that first of all, every person has a conscience and every person has some inborn sense of order. And it might take a little bit of digging to find the conscience um, or to find that sense of order, but that can be a very good starting point to, to eventually getting from you have a conscience to you have a savior. Okay. Anything else? How about agree or disagree? Give you a minute and with those seated next to you, this is about uh, two thirds of the way down on maybe three quarters of the way down on your reading guide. Agree or disagree? While every human being has a conscience, most do not listen to it. I'll give you a minute or two. Pick a stance and be ready to defend it. <laughs> We're not going to argue about it. Just kidding. We might. All right. Agree or disagree? While every human being has a conscience, most do not listen to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Disagree. You disagree. Disagree. Crystal. I think that's a fantastic point between, you know, that there's not much of a dividing line or it's been blurred between what your conscience tells you and what your social construct or your, your interactions with the culture around you tells. Um, and I think that's, that's another point that, that is, you know, part of the big picture of, you know, the Christian church today is that much of what we call Western culture, um, especially come, you know, coming out of Europe, <laughs> basically was, was shaped by a very methodical approach to scripture and doctrine. And that and all the way down to the languages that were learned, um, you know, that you would learn Latin so that you could discuss things theologically. You would learn Greek so that you could learn the Greek poets and read the Greek New Testament. Um, and, that, and that that has shaped even our American culture for the last 500 years for certain, um, if not longer. And, and where we're at today with um, kind of trying to deconstruct that is the word that is often used. Um, you know, why are we talking about all these dead white guys um, kind of a mindset? And you, you can't really separate our modern culture from the Christianity that had, had shaped it um, because Christianity is very much a, an organized and methodical set of doctrines. And it's been taught that way for a long time. Um, and so when you talk about the conscience, you know, that most people do not listen to it, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind because there can be social pressure to do what is correct or even sometimes what is incorrect, um, totally a part of what a, a person's conscience is telling them. Others, Kathy. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's kind of a good summary because it's, it's difficult to parse out exactly the, the motive behind um, why, why we don't have murders absolutely everywhere. Um, is it, is it the, simply the conscience or somebody doesn't have the opportunity or they, they know that they'll get caught and they'll get punished the threat of punishment. Um, and, and so the reality that we're dealing with is that yes, every person has a conscience, 
Um, if we don't, you know, psychologically, if, if they, if they say that somebody doesn't have a conscience, their way of describing that is a, a sociopath, um, somebody who, you know, takes pleasure in the pain of others, I guess. Um, but biblically speaking, you, we, we deal with each person as, as people having consciences. Um, and sometimes that, that conscience might be misinformed to, to the positive or to the negative, you know, but, but poorly either way, um, told, you know, to the, the positive to be very strict, like, um, you know, like one person that I had talked to said, you know, on Sundays, I, we go home and I don't do any cooking. I don't do any cleaning. We just relax and we have a, we have a day. Um, because they had grown up in a household where it's Sunday, it's a Sabbath day, and you don't do anything. Um, that is, you know, turning up the law. And, and that's what that person's conscience says. Um, and so you, you have to deal with that person as they stand. Um, or turning down the law, um, that, that two people might live together, have a family together, start a household together, and, and never, never be married. And think that, you know, this is absolutely normal. Um, where the, the, the voice of the law has been diluted or, or silenced by reasoning in a way. Okay. How about the next one? We'll take, we might get through the end of this page. Cool. <laughs> I explained this statement from the book. All man-made religions are an attempt to deal with the God who is behind the natural law and the conscience. All man-made religions are an attempt to deal with the God who is behind the natural law and the conscience. Oh, I finally figured out what GA stands for. <laughs> stands for Grace Abounds, <laughs> the name of the book. Because we were looking at the abbreviations and Desiree's like, all right, I'm familiar with the formula of Concord, the Augsburg Confession what's ga and i'm like i don't know <laughs> okay so I'll, I'll openly admit that i i did not realize that the first you know three times through this all right what do we mean um is that is that something worth worth agreeing with and if so um how would you put that into your own words all man-made religions are an attempt to deal with the god who is behind the natural law and the conscience. Yep. Yeah. And that, um, I think when, when, if you're familiar with, um, God's great exchange, um, that's, that's kind of a, a very simple format for you know, like evangelism presentation, you know, what, what God demands and what God sees and then man's solution and God's solution. So in the first box, you know, what God demands, um, God is holy, you know, be holy as I am holy, what God sees that we have sin and we don't have holiness, but then box three, um, there's, you know, when we first, when our synod first started using this, like, you know, 50 years ago. Um, they had, they had three pictures that you could draw into box three. One is like a, a ladder. Um, you know, I, I may not be good enough, but I'm working my way and I'm trying. And one of these days I'll reach my potential, uh, the ladder. Um, the, the second picture is of a set of scales. Well, I did something bad. So then I'll do something good to even it out. 
Um, the third picture is comparison between like a large stick figure and a small stick figure. Well, I may, I may be bad, but I'm not that bad. I may have killed somebody, but it was only one, you know, or it was only, I'm no um, Joseph Stalin. Um, but then I think, and I've, we've talked about this at pastor's conference too, that realistically there's, there's a fourth option for man-made solutions um, is just a question mark. So find some way to forget about it. Um, either, you know, find some way to, to dull the conscience, um, sometimes substances um, or legal or illegal, um, or pursuing your passions and your hobbies, um, getting so wrapped up in, in the sports or the children or your work um, or the vacation time to find some way to find some peace. Um, and I think, and, and so, you know, dealing with the natural law and the conscience is, is kind of the, the main thing that we see, but recognizing that natural law and the conscience are also both creations of God. And, and the reality is the con if you look at the conscience, um, properly, you'll see that the standard never drops <laughs> as much as you can bend it. Um, and so you're really trying to deal with the God who's behind all that. We'll take this next one and then that will probably wrap us up because it's been an hour or it will have been an hour. Uh, in the book, Professor, Professor Deutschlander makes the point that individual societies and whole cultures could invent religions contrary to all natural knowledge and conscience is itself a testimony to the power of conscience as well as the power of evil. Any example? Individuals, societies, and cultures. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, as, as one example, where they, they know enough of God's word um, to, to try to, you know, confuse the Christians that they talk to, but not so much that they want to submit to actually what God's word says. Excellent. And the Mormons, yeah, same boat. And it's basically the same, the same false teaching, just that the Mormons dress it up a little bit better. Laura. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that would be an excellent example um, where we talk about abortion, that this isn't the, the ending of a life. It's the termination of a pregnancy. And, um, and we're not talking about a baby. We're talking about a fetus, because if we put it into, you know, different language, then it, it, it looks sterile and it looks medical. Yeah. And, and I would agree. And, um, and I think one of the, the elements, um, you know, behind trying to do away with gender, um, and, you know, assigning, you know, male and female pronouns to people. And even like the year we left Ottawa, uh, in 2013, we moved from Ottawa to Minnesota. And when you applied to be a student at the university of Ottawa, you know, university of 75,000 kids, um, you had your choice of one of 54 genders. <laughs> it's like, that, that's like creative writing to the max. Um, but I think there, there is something to, um, for instance, the, the gay rights movement that they call it pride, that it, it totally flips, flips God's design for man and woman on its, on its head. And in an attempt to quiet the conscience, we turn it into something that we celebrate. 
And, and I think what you're talking about with the, the Air Force Academy or, you know, mandatory training like that, um, that is one way to, you know, you're dealing with the natural, natural law overall, both in the natural um, biology of people as well as in the conscience. And the conscience directs your actions. And so if you can, if you can modify somebody's actions, then you can maybe modify the conscience or get from actions to the, the, the ethic behind that action. And then hopefully the conscience will end up modifying the society and doing away with natural constraints as God has designed them. Yeah, just, just keep sanding it away. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's uh, to wrap it, wrap it up. I think that's the, the major reason why we have a class like this. Um, obviously for, you know, your, your edification, um, for ministry expansion, um, because a congregation always benefits when people are well instructed, but also, um, looking at the, the trends or the politics or the cultural trends, um, that the, the biggest problem for any of these major cultural movements is a biblically strong church. Um, because that church is something that doesn't bend. If you have a, a biblically weak church or a liberal church body, it can, it'll blow with the wind. Um, but the, those Christians who don't want to change what they believe, well, that's the problem. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> we will wrap up. Um, I do have the reading section for the next time. So next time we'll pick up um, at the bottom of page one. And we'll finish out this section and just kind of keep plowing through into the next chapter. You probably don't have to read the entire next chapter, um, but I will hand out reading guides after we have our closing prayer. And so we'll pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for um, telling us in your revealed word of God exactly what's going on within our hearts and in, within the world that we see. Uh, lead us to treasure the gift of the conscience um, and to spend time with your word that that conscience may be sharpened appropriately and lead us to um, and give us the wisdom to glorify you in the world that wants to throw off all the constraints that you have designed. Above all, that your name may be glorified and that more may hear of the message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.